Hi, I'm Vishnu Shrinivas, and welcome to Hawkeye, a podcast featuring prominent business professionals and their views on topics impacting businesses and economies around the world. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Joining me today is Lawrence Hamtel. He is an investment advisor at Fortune Financial Advisors. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Awesome. Yeah. So do you want to start off with a quick background about your role and yourself? Yeah. So I'm, I'm 40 years old. I've been in the financial services industry for maybe 20 years in September. I've kind of done just about everything in the, in the industry, started from the, the ground up, making spreadsheets and, and coffee and all those <laughs> menial tasks uh, to managing portfolios for individuals, which is what I spend most of my time doing these days. Um, we have uh, clients across the U.S. And, and some living abroad, and I spend most of my time building their portfolios, managing their cash flows, um, all the aspects that you would you would think of when it comes to financial advisory. So, um, I kind of stumbled into the industry by accident. I just happened to be coming back to Kansas City after spending some time in Washington D.C. Um, was trying to figure out what my next steps were. A couple of gentlemen hired me on in their practice to do some uh, analysis and uh, back office management. And uh, it turns out that I stuck around. So here we are. Here we are. And I guess diving more into your past, when did you first cultivate your passion for investing? And I guess throw in any humorous investing stories that you may have uh, encountered over the years? Yeah, so I, I don't know that I, I mean, I graduated high school in 2000. So that kind of coincided with the, <clears throat> the tech bubble peak. And uh, I had a, a economics teacher in high school, Dave Shriver. So Dave, if you're out there, hello. But uh, he was pretty instrumental in, in kind of teaching us a lot of the stuff about how markets work, investments, uh, economic cycles, all those different sorts of things. And of course, it's very basic because you're in high school, but it got me interested in it. And I thought uh, economics might be a good thing to, to study in school. And I think my my major ended up being in, in finance and economics. And uh, I would say he, that's kind of where it began. It was probably my junior, senior year in high school and doing some of those research projects. I believe Boeing was the first company that I kind of analyzed. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I just kind of went from there. Uh, I don't have much of a, a humorous story, so to speak, but I do remember one thing that did have an impact on me just in terms of thinking about opportunity cost mm-hmm. um, was uh, my dad was an ophthalmologist and I spent some time at his office doing some accounting and things like that. I was speaking with one of his patients who said he had a $400,000 card. I was thinking, man, it must be like a Maybach or a McLaren or something like that. You know, it's a hell of a lot of money for 2000 or whatever it was. Right. And he explained to me that, that he never wanted to have any debt. So he sold his Cisco stock and it split mm-hmm. and it split. So he paid $40,000 for this car. But if he had just kept the stock, you know, he would have had so much more. Of course, you know, more cynical people would say that Cisco didn't do anything for the next 20 years. So maybe he didn't make such a bad decision after all. But framing it like that does put some perspective on it in terms of 
how you think about your personal balance sheet, your debt, opportunity cost, all those sorts of things. And uh, I just was not used to thinking like that. So it was kind of an eye opener. Definitely. I definitely call it that. Um, and I'm curious about, since you've worked in this industry for so long, I guess, how do you navigate a market like the current one where, like, to my eye, there seems to be so much uncertainty, at least in recent memory, uh, with recessionary fears, oil shocks uh, in con- different countries, inflation issues. To what extent does it ultimately boil down to luck or do you think you can proactively take measures to mitigate some of the risk that's going on? I, I- you know, it's, it's sort of funny. I don't know that anybody has a, a secret to, to navigating these sorts of things, but I've, I've come, to, come to the conclusion that building a portfolio is similar to crafting a vessel or let's say in simple terms, uh, an automobile. And the goal is to get you from A to B safely. And you have all of these factors to consider, uh, different variables, um, and there's trade-offs. You, you can optimize the car for miles per gallon. It's probably going to be very small, uh, very light. You can optimize it for safety and make it extremely heavy and, and, and very slow. And somewhere the balance is in between. You can also be a very good driver and still be at the mercy of other motorists <laughs> who uh, can, can ruin your day because of their... their um, poor driving skills. So when you build a portfolio, there is an element of of luck in terms of when you buy something and maybe it's discounted and and your timing just happens to work out. But in the long run, it's really more of a discipline, I think, than than anything else. It's trying to strike a, a portfolio balance between the safer assets that should protect you, but might be a drag when things are going extremely well and also remembering that you have to have discipline on the way up as much as on the way down so you don't want to be a panic seller but you also want to make sure that when things are going well you rebalance you maintain cash and fixed income and some other things that will help cushion the downside when the cycle turns and and then the rest of it is just trying to be agnostic as to what the future is, uh, spreading your bets around, being sufficiently diversified. That's really all you can do. And, and I would point out that um, you sort of have to determine what you think are the most likely threats to your portfolio. I mean, you cannot possibly defend against everything. You can spread yourself too thin. So there is a point where you, you know, you've over diversified. So Finding that balance, each person is going to have a different answer for that. But that's really the only way that I can think of to survive this. I mean, we have inflation now for the first time, and most, and a lot of investors live in memory. Most people have forgotten how to deal with that. Uh, of course, oil stocks are on a tear, but they hadn't done anything for almost a decade. So, you know, having the discipline to maintain those positions when they're out of favor, recognizing that. We hadn't had inflation in a long time, but it could come back. And of course it has. And, you know, those positions have proved their worth. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question directly, but but the best I can come up with is just having a plan, trying to stick with it and being disciplined and executing them. And comparing time periods is always a kind of a dangerous game to play. But do you see uh, any similarities to at least a lot of people bring up like 1970s in terms of inflation and, and overall like the economy 
And or do you think this economy right now doesn't really compare to any? Uh, yeah, I mean, past? there's always some similarities. Uh, the cycles don't always repeat themselves. Uh, sometimes historical analogs are useful in terms of a framework. Uh, I have recently tweeted that I think maybe 1990 is a is a similar type scenario where you have this geopolitical event. In that case, it was the Gulf War. You had uh, an inflationary spike uh, relative to oil and, and some other things. It seems like now is a little more severe on the inflation front than it was then. And of course, the war in Ukraine seems to be a lot more dire in terms of its humanitarian and geopolitical. Uh, it certainly has lasted a lot longer than the Gulf War did. But I'm also not convinced that the economy is as weak as it was at certain times in the 70s. So maybe the truth is somewhere in between. Um, and people forget in the 70s, there were multiple shocks. I mean, you had the 73 um, oil embargo from the Arab nations. You had a pretty nasty recession in 74, 75 and a market crash. Right. You had, um, you know, the, uh, I guess, Iran, uh, Iranian revolution, mm -hmm. 1979. So it was like a sequence of things, <laughs> you know, that each one made it worse in, in turn. Hopefully we don't see that case. But yeah. you know, so far we've had this the supply chain issues with COVID and then the war in Ukraine. So you know, hopefully it doesn't get worse from there. For sure. And diving more into specifically your investment philosophy, uh, from what I've read, you've kind of been a proponent for constructing a sector neutral portfolio. Could you expand on some of the key defining characteristics of that? And do you think that's even more relevant in times like today for aforementioned reasons? So when I talk about a sector neutral framework, uh, first and foremost, we're thinking about in our portfolios, we want to be agnostic as to how we weight the, the different sector exposures in the portfolio. Uh, you can pick your benchmark. Um, it could be the MSCI world, S&P 500, whatever. And you start with, let's say, 20% tech, 10% financials, and so on. I don't know that I have an advantage in terms of forecasting or predicting which sector will do best. So that's why we, we try not to make big sector bets. Uh, right. You can look back historically and, and uh, maybe you thought that energy was super cheap in 2017 after three years of lagging. And of course, it would have taken so much longer for it to, to turn out. So we, we try not to make those big sector bets. But where we do think we have a little bit of an advantage as in overweighting industries within certain sectors. So for example, you might think of the industrial space and uh, let's say if the index has 10% industrials, we'll try to be close to that target as well. But, but if industrials have only, let's say 2% in defense stocks, we might have six or 7% because we think that's where the opportunity is. So right. we're as neutral as possible on the sector basis, but definitely overweight on an industry basis. The reason for that is I, I think certain industries have more favorable economics than others. And, and certainly there are some industries that I either don't have a good grasp on, or I think that they're economically disadvantaged. So I want to, and, and oftentimes with investing, it's not so much what you own as what you exclude that determines your success. So 
that portfolio construct as a way of um, expressing that view. And, and that's kind of what I think has, has worked well for me. Other people might have different approaches, but you know, trying to get as few things right as possible is usually how I think about um, a good foundation for successful investing. Yeah, that definitely seems like a, a pretty successful strategy. And going more specifically into a certain sector right now, it seems like a lot of investors have soured on the tech industry as of late. Is this, in your opinion, a short-term reaction to interest rate concerns? Or do you think many people truly believe the companies in the sector to be overvalued akin to like the dot-com bubble, for instance? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, if you look at the forecasted earnings growth, I think technology stocks continue to enjoy some of the more robust uh, forecasts as far as their future earnings is concerned, but uh, or are concerned, I should say. But the uh, for whatever reason, um, in my research, I've, I've noticed that technology stocks tend to fall off when inflation uh, picks up. I don't know if it's an interest rate thing because in the 90s, interest rates were much higher and tech stocks still did well, but inflation was was fairly low in the 90s, certainly relative to today. I've hypothesized that perhaps the explanation is inflation shortens people's time horizons. So if you're a growth stock, particularly technology, so much of that growth is in the future. So you're thinking 10, 20, maybe 30 years down the line, depending on what you're looking at. Well, when inflation comes up, seems like investors are more concerned with the bird in the hand and less care less about the two in the bush, so to speak, to use that little metaphor. And that's why maybe you've seen technology sell off and derate. You know, I think a lot of the the sell-off has just been the multiples compressing, because as far as I as I know, earnings have still been there, but people are simply willing to pay less. And conversely, what has worked at least better so far this year have been dividend paying stocks, which if you have a high dividend yield, you're getting a lot of your return today. So you're not having mm-hmm. to wait. And if inflation is, <clears throat> excuse me, higher down the line, well, you know, you'd rather have your payoff today. So maybe it is something as simple as duration. Higher duration stocks are suffering in this inflationary environment. Low duration investments are holding up better. That's one possible explanation. I'm not sure anybody knows, but uh, you know, having some technology exposure in my sector neutral portfolio. Um, I, I do think that uh, there, there are stocks worth owning, otherwise we wouldn't. But I do think that there's, there's going to be a big difference in terms of the severity of the decline. I mean, you're seeing a lot of tech stocks down as badly as many were in the 2000-2002 dot-com bust. And, and maybe only the mega caps are holding up and obscuring a lot of that damage there. So it, it will be, I think, or it should continue to be kind of a bifurcated market there with extreme losers and maybe some that hold up better. But I'm not sure that most of the mega caps have their futures impaired. Uh, maybe they suffer from being over-owned and too much... Um, you know, too concentrated in a lot of portfolios and those same portfolios are having to, to sell those off in this downturn. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, I, I don't think that it will be necessarily as bad as, you know, tech doing nothing for 10, 12 years post 2000, but they're probably going to take a little bit longer to come back than most people think. 
Yeah, this definitely feels like a tale of two extremes in the tech industry. Exactly. Uh, where I want to touch on last uh, is, I guess we have to talk about crypto. Mm. And an article was recently posted, uh, you know, and said like the main reason people don't buy Bitcoin is that they don't quote, know enough about it. And I jokingly replied, the people who buy it don't seem to know much about it either. <laughs> but I guess when you look at the recent crypto crash, I'm not sure you even want to try to make sense of this, but I guess humor me. Do you think blind faith or like lack of knowledge contributed to this whole crypto experience that we're seeing? Um, you know, I think it's largely explained maybe by behavioral phenomena more than anything else. And I have done a, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but, but um, you know, I, I, I think maybe the best explanation is um, people or investors tend to favor lottery type outcomes. And so the, the simpler way of saying that is they're looking for get rich quick opportunities. And why would you want to invest in a solid blue chip that might double your money over five years when your friends and whatever crypto coin are doubling it in a month or a week or whatever? And, and of course, it, it's sort of a way of, it could be explained by investors simply having access to something that is kind of like high beta on steroids. And if they don't necessarily have access to leverage like an institutional investor, owning a highly volatile asset is maybe the next best thing. And, and uh, I, I think that it's simply it's sort of as a victim of its own success. I mean, you have all of this money crowding into it. You have a lot of people chasing it and then it implodes uh, afterwards because that marginal buyer disappears. The excess liquidity dries up and then there's a big gap that has to be filled. I don't have any exposure personally to it. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know much about it. Uh, you're talking with somebody whose portfolio, personal portfolio includes things like trash bags and cigarettes. So, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, I, I'm not the person to ask, but it is interesting to observe from a behavioral standpoint. And um, I do think it does go a long way to explaining. I mean, to me, it's just a risk asset a high risk asset and it's implied volatility kind of shows that and it probably could be useful in a portfolio context as long as position sizes are maintained and and, and there's discipline there um, but i i am skeptical as to whether or not it has any real world applications i don't know that it's going to disappear completely but um, i think it's also okay to be on the sidelines and just watch it play out you know, you don't have to swing at every pitch, so to speak. That's a great way to put it. Uh, if you live by crypto, I think you're going to have to accept that you're going to have to die by crypto sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, for sure. Yeah. Awesome stuff, Lawrence. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the time you spent uh, talking with the shade, sharing your own uh, points of view. Uh, thanks so much. Sure. I appreciate it. Enjoy the weekend.